Movie Junkies and Cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 313 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, happy 2019. This is the 12er Shia Islam mysticism episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that in 12er Shia Islam mysticism, the 12th hidden imam has an army of soldiers and the number of soldiers in this army is 313. And with that wonderful little bit of 12 Shia Islam, Islam mysticism knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Islam mysticism, Islam mysticism, Islam mysticism. I couldn't say it quicker than that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of rough. Islam mysticism. I mean, you really don't hear Islam and mysticism joined together do they believe in the mystic arts of mysticism the islamism well, I think mysticism is just supposed to be more or less like the religious historical aspects behind this particular sect of um islam much like we have in the here in the states with the majority canonical christian judeo-christian faiths you have um the the books of the bible but then you also have things that are not in not in the books in the bible but still referencing the bible in the time that's kind of i guess would be a similar aspect to it sure i'll believe that (laughs) (laughs) well i mean for example so there's all these books to the bible right and they had like the seat of the synod and all this crap back in the 1200s or some such nonsense i can't remember when where they literally decided what would become the canonical Bible, you know, where you'd start with Genesis and end with Revelation. Well, certain things didn't meet the criterion to fit into the Bible for whatever reason, but they still hold a a, a relevance to the Bible. And so maybe, for example, there's like, uh, I'm sure there's an apostle named Joe, who is not in, you know, it's not, it doesn't go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Joe, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And so Joe has, has his version of what happened. And even though it's not canonical, it would be like the mysticism involved behind creating the Bible. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Would he then be called Mystic Joe? He could be. He could be Mystic Joe. His name just doesn't really fit with some of the other ones, you know, like, yada, 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 and Joe. Exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, you're used to hearing things like Malachi and uh, Jebediah and and Matthew and uh, John, like these strong names. And then you just kind of get Joe. And maybe that's maybe maybe they just didn't like the name. And. Like, how do, you, how do you reference Joe when you're talking about Pontius Pilate? How do you do that? Well, you can't. All right, well, then you can't be in the Bible. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But it does give me... That, but I like Mystic. Mystic I like because now we have our name for that bartender. We can call her Mystic Michelle. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the Xanax-filled bartender yes. 
who <laughs> thought that us ordering a vodka and Red Bull was the weirdest, dumbest, strangest thing that has ever been ordered at that sports bar after 10 p.m. In How the ridiculous. history of the world, or at least the world in Houston or her Xanax-addled world, I don't know. And and I guess so that you can kind of jump back into where we are, because clearly we just kind of meandered over here. Uh, Tim and I, of course, met up over the holiday break. We got to hang out uh, between Christmas and New Year's a couple times, and the and both of our significant others were together. We made it a foursome, and after much going around trying to find a place that was open <laughs> and and serving, we found this bar over by me and uh, over by where I live, and that's kind of where we ended up. And then, yes, this poor woman who has clearly been on Xanax for quite a while. I, I, I still claim that she was just drunk, but it's entirely possible it was Xanax as well. Uh, decided to argue with us over over a drink instead of just being like, huh, well, that's interesting. I've not heard of it, but tell me what it is and I'll make it for you. No, no, no. She went on this whole diatribe of how it was like the weirdest thing and yeah, it just rubbed us the wrong way. It was not a good time. At I mean, we had a blast just because it was hilarious, but the the, the interplay between characters here in front of and behind the bar was pretty terrible. She had the gall to turn to you and go, maybe only in New York they drink those Red Bull and <laughs> vodkas. Well, we don't drink that here in Texas, honey. But she yeah. didn't sound more like that. It was more like, and uh, you don't really drink that here. And it's not because you're old, because you're not that old, but... That's kind of how she sounded, guys. It was pretty crazy. A lot thankfully, of thankfully, though. Yeah, thankfully, though, even Tim's more significant other, the upgraded SO, as it were, the fiance, even she was like, "Hang on, no, no, no," because we were doing this stuff in California back when I was in college, because that's what the sorority girls and stuff were drinking that stuff, and I was like, "Good," so it wasn't just me. It's a very popular drink. Guys, if if nobody sends us an email about this, that means we are in the right and... <laughs> <laughs> but a Christmas miracle transpired for us while we were away. What did... Say no, we did not get an email. We got an email! <laughs> Seriously? I shit you not, motherfucker. We really? got an email. <laughs> so we should totally segue into that. Right now. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. That's right. By that wonderful bit of childlike applause. We do have an email. Diana has come through for us yet again. She wrote back on the 30th of December with the subject line, Call me by your name. That's right. She writes, Hi, guys. I just finished watching Call Me By Your Name, and I must say Matthew was right. This is a rare gem of a movie for many reasons. First, I must thank Matt for beseeching us listeners to see this movie. I hadn't seen it since gay male love isn't a subject that interested me, but this film offers so much more than expected. The sights and sounds of the Italian summer and the music are alone enough to soothe the soul in winter. 
But then the love story. Oh, my aching heart. So beautiful. So intense. So sensual and passionate. And I'll never see eating a peach the same way again with three peach emojis. <laughs> Not sure whether to curse you or thank you for this lump in my throat now. Happy New Year, Matt and Tim. Cheers, Diana. Well, thank you very much for that, Diana. That was absolutely outstanding. I'm so glad that our words reached you. And that, and that especially, because that was our... That that email came in after our uh, review of the year. So that was after we talked about the best and the worst of 2018. And now we absolutely have to make sure we keep doing those. Indeed, yeah. Thank you very much, Diana. We were actually worried about you. We haven't heard from you in such a long time. I'm pretty sure people probably think we've made her up. But that's okay. Because, because we know the truth. We know. And... And, and, and Johnny knows, and the Midnight Movie Nights know, and, and of course, all these are people who no longer have podcasts, so you can't even talk to them. I don't know, <laughs> man. I I'm, I'm kind of thinking up. that right now myself. <laughs> I swear to you, we haven't made the, we haven't made all this stuff up yet. 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 We'll, we'll let you know when we get there. But if you would like to join Diana, uh, please reach out to us. Send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. And if you'd like to see more about us and find out what we're more about, of course, there's slscast.com. And if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com and looking, looking us up there. So I think, Tim, if it's okay with you, um, we can definitely go and get into news, right? Because, you know, we haven't done news for a while. It's probably time we get into that. I will allow that. <laughs> Thank you, Daddy. <laughs> Here, we Here we go, folks. It's <laughs> the news. So, first up from me, uh, you know what? Actually, we're gonna go. We're gonna go with the easier one, so that uh, Tim, you have time to get to your news. Because I have a feeling if I go with the other one, we might be there for a while. So, from Variety.com, by way of Christopher Tapley, Lawrence of Arabia tops ASC's list of 120th century cinematography milestones. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the American Society of Cinematographers, in celebration of the organization's 100th anniversary, has revealed its list of 100 milestone films in the art and craft of cinematography from the 20th century. The list culminates with a top 10, topped by Freddie Young's lensing of David Lean's Oscar-winning 1962 epic, Lawrence of Arabia. Jordan Cronenwith's work on Ridley Scott's 1982 sci-fi standard Blade Runner came in at number two. Celebrated cinematographer Roger Deakins finally won an Oscar last year for the film sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Vittorio uh, Storaro rounded out the top three for Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 Vietnam Odyssey Apocalypse Now. He, Conrad Hall, and Gordon Wills each appeared on the overall list five times leading the pack. John Alcott, Caleb Deschanel, and Haskell Wexler each lensed for. Organized by Steven Fearsberg, ASC 
and voted on by ASC members, the Milestones list is the first of its kind to showcase the best of cinematography as selected by professional cinematographers. The collection, quote, represents a range of styles, eras, and visual artistry, but most importantly, it commemorates films that are inspirational or influential to ASC members and have exhibited enduring influence to generations of filmmakers, end quote. The Society States. So I'm just going to go over the top 10 here for you real quick. Uh, but you can get the full list of 100, uh, 100 films listed on this variety.com article. And also, that was probably about the first half of that article. The article itself, in terms of body length, is pretty short. But that whole list is there. So please be sure to check that out. Uh, again, variety.com by way of Christopher Tapley, Lawrence of Arabia tops ASC's list of 120th century cinematography milestones. Here's that top 10 list. Again, Lawrence of Arabia is the number one. Blade Runner from 1982, Apocalypse Now from 1979, Citizen Kane coming in at number four from 1941, 1972's The Godfather, 1980's Raging Bull, 1970's The Conformist, 1978 Days of Heaven, 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and bottom of the top ten list coming in at number ten, 1971's The French Connection. What do you think there, Tim? Do you agree with this list, at least the top 10? Do you agree with number one, even? Well, it's different. I mean, not different. It's difficult to say what your favorite top 10 shot movies are. And given the wide range of personalities and visionaries and talent associated with the ASC, this list isn't uh, super surprising to me. I agree with most of these. I think having the conformist here and uh, Days of Heaven and even the French Connection getting some representation is wonderful. And I was not expecting to see either of those. Well, Days of Heaven, I would have uh, figured it would be on this list. But especially the French Connection French Connection in the conformist, I would think a, a couple others probably would have made the list instead. But I, I think it's great. I think it's a nice mixture of films Again, not super surprising given the the variety of talent associated with the ASC. So, but was there anything on this list that you wanted to see or you're surprised wasn't included? Not especially, mainly because they really did do such a fantastic job of getting it of getting everything on there that and and so I can see why something like the French Connection would be on the list, um, mainly you know to kind of cover more action style films and things like that. Um, I am kind of surprised that Doctor Strangelove is on the list, um, not because it's not a great movie in its own right, but I don't generally think cinematography when I think that film. But then you of course have things oh, like Doctor Zhivago and stuff wait, like that. Wait, hang so. on. What? Wait, yeah, no, Doctor Strangelove's not on the top ten list. Oh no, I was just going over the list in general. Oh, the list in general. You, you just kind of, you just kind of said the list in general. Oh, but, sorry, so to, I, I, to specifically. I meant... Oh, just keeping it to the top ten list. Oh, yeah, sorry, no, no, yeah, no, I was talking about the top ten, but yeah, I okay. actually haven't. Uh, if we're talking about the list in general, I, there's nothing I can argue with here. I'm glad that HUD uh, has some love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Love HUD, man, that's a fantastic film. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay, I did not see. I was looking at another article that just had the top ten, so I just went to yours, and now I can see. Actually, is I wonder is Goodfellas on this list? 
head down to the 1990s. The, it, the whole list, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you are following along, playing along at home, uh, the top 10 list is done by quality, but the list itself is done in, um, in the order of the year it was, chronological order. So it starts with 1927, goes all the way to 2000. So scanning down to the 90s. Yeah, good no. fellas, it's not. It is not. That's interesting. Very interesting. But I mean, you, I mean, it gets harder to find, to, to really start getting those extreme standouts. Um, in in that regard, especially when you're already putting the Godfather and the Godfather Part Two on there. Oh, Chinatown's on there. Okay, I'm feeling better about this list now. At least Chinatown's on there. <laughs> but no, I I love all of these movies. So especially Paris, Texas. I'm glad that's on this list. Beautiful Wim Wenders movie. Paris, Texas is. So yeah, no, this sure. is good. It's kind of cool. It makes me want to go back and rewatch some of these, especially all the ones that I haven't seen in quite some time. What do you got there for us, sir? All right, so the Golden Globes were just a few days ago. We are, of course, recording on Tuesday, January 8th, uh, 2019, and the Golden Globes created some sort of uh, upset, believe it or not, and if you've been living under a entertainment rock um, I'm gonna just going to go through a few of these upsets, or just a couple of these upsets, uh, starting with Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role in Any Motion Picture, and this is via the Golden Globe Awards website, goldenglobes.com slash winners dash nominees. Uh, so the nominees were Timothy Chalamet for Beautiful Boy, Adam Driver for Black Klansman, Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Sam Rockwell for Vice, and then lastly, Mahershala Ali for Green Book, and Mahershala, Mahershala Ali uh, won the Golden Globe for Green Book. Uh, were there any issues that you took with, uh, with this one, Matt? I know we've only covered... Oh, well, we're going to be covering Vice uh, today, but we have yet covered uh beautiful boy or can you forgive me yeah no i was good I, I was good with this one yeah i feel pretty good about it too um i'm looking forward for you to see can you ever forgive me because if you remember richard e grant i don't know if there's a picture on uh the website that you're oh, looking at yeah i'm looking at golden globes so okay goldenglobes.com he was in that movie That's with nail and i yeah he was in with nail and i from mm -hmm. the late 80s sure. and I probably one of my favorite roles of his since uh since that film um, and then up above that, Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role in Any Motion Picture, Amy Adams in Vice, Rachel Weiss in The Favorite, Emma Stone from The Favorite, Claire Foy, First Man, and then Regina King, If Beale Street Could Talk. And we're, of course, going to cover If Beale Street Could Talk uh, next week. So there's not really too much uh, we could say about this film, but from the other four, though... Um, would you have liked to have seen any of the other no. four take it? Nope. <laughs> so I'm all, I, I, we're not even covering if Beale Street could talk and I'm already willing to give it to Regina King. So, <laughs> so that tells me that, that that's kind of where I'm at on it. I really liked Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz in The Favorite. So I'm, I'm looking forward to did. seeing. And look, I'm not saying, Street. again, I am not trying to trash the acting job that they did. Because they did well with what they were working with. 
But the material itself, the way it was shot and stuff, all those things did not resonate with me. I was not a happy camper uh, at any point throughout this movie, beyond like the first, beyond the four minutes or whatever, when I was going on about the music. So I'm, I'm not hating on them in and of themselves, but when the product you, when the product comes and is delivered in such a way that, I mean, kind of like, okay, you, you get, uh, you get a really good restaurant, right? And you're getting takeout from this restaurant for whatever reason. And so it's cooked well, it's prepared well, it's boxed well, but somewhere between the kitchen and the counter, they dropped the bag with all the food in it, and then they don't say anything. And then you open it and you get it home, and there's this wonderful food with all these great ingredients that was cooked well. But you open the bag and it's just a jumbled mess of food and it looks terrible. That's kind of the favorite for me, right? You've got good director, good, or at least an avant-garde director. You've got great actresses. You've got an interesting period piece, good cinematography, really good costume design and set design. But the, but the movie, but the, the movie itself, meh. So I'm not trying to hate on anybody. I mean, because beyond a certain point, what we do is subjective beyond a certain point. I think uh, it does become subjective. And so I, I'm not hating on them. I don't think that they're terrible actresses. I don't think that uh, they'll never do another good job again. Clearly, I and I understand I'm also in the, in the minority on this one. And, and that's okay, too. I think when we get done with tonight, I'm going to be in the minority again. Um, and And that's okay. But it's not enough. Oh, you I didn't mean, like Roma? Oh, God. God, but, I had a feeling that was going to be the case watching this movie. It's like, you know what? I am, I'm, look, man, I'm not trying to start some shit. I mean, it was just the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry. And uh, I don't know. Um, so we'll, we'll get there, too. We'll get there, too. I'm not trying. I just, um, I, I love Alfonso Cuaron, Cuaron and, I think it was 100% deliberate. Every camera movement, every action, everything that you're ta- that you're meant to take in, uh, every choice that was made, color palette, which is difficult to pull off in a black and white film, and yet he does that really well. Like you can see color, even though there's not color there. Look, I, I, we'll get there. We'll get there. I'm not, you know, but it was just it was just slow. <laughs> it was just really, really slow, and. That so Matthew doesn't like Netflix America. Design. He's anti-America. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you okay? Uh, so that was actress in a supporting role. Uh, Claire Foy. I'd be surprised. I I don't know. I wasn't a big fan. Amy Adams. I thought she was great in Vice, but I I mean I didn't. I wasn't riveted. I didn't find her performance necessarily riveting. So I'm really looking forward to seeing and reviewing. Uh, if Beale Street could talk for next week. Uh, so above the ladies, best performance by an actor in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. John C. Riley for uh, from Stan in Ollie, which I'm so excited to see uh, whenever it comes out over here. Robert Redford in Old Man and the Gun, or The Old Man and the Gun. Vigo Mortensen from Green Book. Land Manuel Miranda from Mary Poppins Returns. And then finally, Christian Bell from 
Vice or in Vice. And of course, Christian Bell won the Golden Globe for Vice. Um, and, <laughs> and thank Satan himself. <laughs> and my deal with the Golden Globes is that oftentimes people get nominated for comedies when they're not in a comedy. Like, I wouldn't necessarily consider Vice a comedy. It's like when The Martian was nominated for Best Comedy or Musical Film, and it won. Right. It, it's rough because I think that Vice, uh, and again, we'll get to this one later too, I think that Vice is designed, and I know that we also specifically talked about this when we should have we should have recorded that conversation at Tapped, man, seriously. Um, but... Uh, I, I think that especially knowing what you told me um, going into because okay sorry guys catch y'all kind of up obviously we were hanging out over the break and we had a conversation about Vice Tim had literally just come from the theater and I had yet to see it and so we were talking about it and he didn't spoil anything for me um, but he had kind of explained some of the background decisions that went in the presentation of the film which made a lot more sense especially going into the film after that. I think it's because of the way it was, they chose to sell it and kind of cut it that lends itself to being a comedy drama where it's, it's supposed to be satirical, um, to a larger degree than might have otherwise been intended. Um, and so that's why they're trying to sell it on this comedy side so much. Um, I agree that in point of fact, Vice is not a comedy, but with the comedic elements being so heavily leaned into, I think that's what they're trying to do. And it was the same thing with The Martian. The Martian is at best, uh, air quotes here, action sci-fi, uh, not really, but uh, whatever. It's just that they make sure that... The Martian is such a likable character who is funny and relatable that you find yourself laughing a lot. And then now they can say, oh, but it's a comedy. And that's kind of the problem with the music or comedy thing. Um, I have not had a chance to see Stan and Ollie yet. So based on what we have seen, which is all the other ones, I honestly don't even know why... Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda was even nominated. His performance, I mean, the guy is a stunning, uh, songwriter. <laughs> um, absolutely hands down. Lyricist. You know, he's got a great mind for that. He's truly a genius. But his performance for me did not even merit a nomination so it's kind of like we already were down a good spot yeah it's not saying that also it's not hopefully you're not saying that his performance was necessarily bad it's just oh, no, 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 the no, character didn't not. call sorry. for yeah exactly you know. thank you i'm sorry i don't don't misunderstand i don't think he did a a terrible job by any stretch of the imagination just that his performance was just fine it was it was it was very nice it was very well executed but i mean it wasn't powerful it wasn't uh it wasn't something to elevate the art, as it were. Um, and, and that's why I did not feel he deserved a nomination, not because he did a poor job. And thank you for clarifying that, Tim. 
Um, but without having seen Stan and Ollie and only going with what I can see, I honestly feel that Viggo Mortensen got completely robbed as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think, and just like I told you at the bar, Tim, I think Christian Bale did a fantastic job with Vice. Uh, there was no question that he was, that he, that he wouldn't, but it wasn't that good. It wasn't, uh, let me rephrase that again. It was not better than Viggo Mortensen's portrayal. Right. And so. I agree with that because Viggo Mortensen's character actually had levels to him. And maybe if, and we'll cover this, I know I'll cover this when we get to Vice, but the issue with Vice is that it's very choppy and the narrative is all, gets all thrown out of whack. So it's difficult to, by the end of the movie, it's difficult whether, like, to tell if the director, if Adam McKay wanted you to have a little bit of feeling towards Dick Cheney, or if you were supposed to hate him, because some of the things he did made a little bit of sense, and some of the things that he did do didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I was, it was just kind of more distracting than, uh, than engrossing, I suppose. So, sounds like we're on the same page there. Uh, best performance by an actress in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. Constance Wu from Crazy Rich Asians, which we did not see. Charlize Theron from Tully. Elsie Fisher from Eighth Grade. Emily Blunt from Mary Poppins Returns. And then finally, Olivia Coleman from The Favorite. I agree with this wholeheartedly, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, same here. I, I, again, not having seen Crazy Rich Asians, so I, I will asterisk that clearly. Um, but we've seen, but we saw, we covered all the other ones for the show. I think it was a very, I think that was a very good, uh, nod to Elsie to give her the nomination. Um, and I, despite my not liking the favorite overall, I absolutely understand and can agree with Olivia Coleman getting the the actual award. So I have no problem with Olivia Coleman getting the award here. Um, that's that is okay by me. Two okay, so there's two that raised a lot of concern, and the then the other two uh, did not uh, really. I'm just gonna blow through the two that did not really quick. Best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama. Uh, Glenn Close won for The Wife, which I haven't seen yet. Super excited to see it. I've heard nothing but great things about it. She beat out Lady Gaga uh, for A Star is Born, Nicole Kidman for Destroyer, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Roseman Pike from uh, A Private War. And then we have Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. Green Book won, and that beat out Crazy Rich Asians, The Favorite, Mary Poppins, and Vice. And now the two divisive wins... Uh, best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama nominated were, uh, or who didn't win were John David Washington from Black Klansman, Lucas Hedges, Boy Erased, William Defoe at Eternity's Gate, uh, which we haven't reviewed on the show yet. Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, and the winner was, of course, Rami Malek from Bohemian Rhapsody. Personally, I would have given it to Bradley Cooper <laughs> or Lucas Hedges. Yeah. Same. I, I'm sorry. I think I absolutely believe that Bradley Cooper got shafted here. Um, I, all, all, all respect to Rami Malek. It's not, again, this is not a, it's not a matter of a terrible performance. It's a matter of 
the better performance. And for me, I think it hands down went to Bradley Cooper. Um, and that's going to also play into the fact that uh, Star is Born got shafted for Best Motion Picture. <laughs> well, that's just me. That's just me. And then finally, Best Motion Picture Drama. Uh, the first nominee here, I uh, I don't know. I, I, it's overrated. I think it's overrated. Good movie, but overrated. Has no reason to be on here. Uh, Marvel's Black Panther, A Star is Born, If Beale Street Could Talk. Again, we're seeing uh, and reviewing a If Beale Street Could Talk next week. Black Klansman, and then the winner was Matt's all-time favorite movie of 2018, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Look again. Uh, I, I, I'm. I will reserve absolute final judgment until next week because clearly we need to cover if Beale Street could talk. But, um, I like you. I, I feel like. I, I don't necessarily think it's pandering per se that Black Panther was nominated because I think it did a, a lot of really cool things that it needs to be recognized for. But I don't, but like you, I do not believe that it is truly best picture material. Um, and, and as far as the other ones go, I really just feel like a star is born was the best one. I mean, I, and again, I will, you know, asterisk that until next week till we can, you know, double down on it with having watched a field speak talk. But of all these movies, a star is born is literally the one that I, that, that literally kept me thinking. I mean, just like when we talked about it at first, uh, I'm sitting there going, Holy crap. You know, like it kept me up at night thinking about it. And it's been a very long time since a movie affected me like that. Um, the others, the others did not do that. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. I, I do feel like I get, I, I really just think that when it comes to Bohemian Rhapsody, I think it's one of those press machines that just refuses to stop. And everybody's just talking about it. And because they're talking about it, they think it's worthy. Um, I have a feeling that if somehow, some way, um, if we are still doing this when we're, you know, 20 years from now, that uh, we'll see if Bohemian Rhapsody aged well, and I don't think it will have. I can agree and, with that. And and I also am willing to say we can cover this as soon as we want to cover it. Uh, was it worthy? I think we could hit a was it worthy within the next year or two, uh, look back on the Academy Awards and stuff like that, even against the Golden Globes, I don't care, um, and do a was it worthy, and I would think that it would fall short. So. Because you know but we're going to have a... a- Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I I just, but I really, truly believe it's the press machine at this point. Oh, totally. 100% agree. And we all know we're going to get a better Freddie Mercury or Queen, uh, like, miniseries at some point for HBO. But really, how can we take this list seriously when not even Ethan Hawke was nominated for First Reformed? I loved his performance, and I'm actually surprised he's not nominated but uh, if you guys want to check out this list again it is from the golden globe awards website www.goldenglobes.com slash winners dash nominees 
And that's my news. Then my last piece of news from MSN.com by way of Gary Levin and USA Today. Nielsen backs Netflix claim of huge Bird Box viewership. That's right, folks. Bird Box is as big a hit as Netflix claims. Nielsen is adding credibility to Netflix's unverified claim that 45 million subscribers worldwide watched the Sandra Bullock film within the first seven days of its December 21st release on the streaming service. The claim seemed incredible because the figure represents nearly one in three Netflix subscriber homes. But the rating service on Tuesday released estimates that 26 million U.S. subscribers watched the movie in the same seven-day period, second only to the second season of Stranger Things, which had fewer than 27 million for its most recent uh, season. Previously, Netflix has never disclosed the audience size for any of its projects and routinely disputes the accuracy of outside efforts to measure it. Now, I'm going to stop there, um, and I encourage you to read the rest. It's just a, a, that was about half of it, pretty short article. But here's the thing. Netflix is clearly counting um, subscriber families, and they're also counting people who are streaming it on devices. So your tablet and or your phone where and your computer. Whereas Nielsen really only has the ability to extrapolate data that they can confirm from their Nielsen boxes, which are invariably tied to a television. And so that would very clearly account for the discrepancy. Not to mention, of course, Netflix wants to toot its own horn. The key here, because it is a discrepancy of 20 million, the discrepancy then, even taking that into account, that's 26 million people for a movie over the Christmas break. And just in the United States, it's not worldwide figures, clearly these are just for the United States. If you did that, against a box office and we'll and, and this is just a hypothetical i am in no means saying that this is the reality and we'll get to that in just one second but if you figure an average of 10 bucks a movie ticket this is an r-rated movie so it's you know there weren't kids watching this 260 times 10 or 26 times 10 260 so you're looking at a quarter of a billion dollars in air quotes revenue that netflix generated uh, on the value of their product. And what I wanted to talk about with this is not the fact that that is an accurate number, because again, would those same people have gone to the movie theater to see it? Of course not, no. Um, but what does it, what does it say about the fact that Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or any streaming service who wants to do their own original movie properties, um, or buy up a movie property, and then slap their name on it. What does it say at the end of the day about the validity of staying at home to watch a movie versus going out to see one? And that was kind of where I wanted to go with this discussion. Because, Tim, I don't even... Did you ever end up seeing Bird Box? I did not. I didn't have time to. I, I actually did watch it. Um, and you know what? It's not a bad flick. I gotta, I gotta say, I mean, just kind of rounding it real fast. I'd give it for sure three and a half stars. It's a decent flick. Very cliched, but executed really well. Um, so I, I mean, I can see how the hype behind it would work and it's very atmospheric and stuff. So that's kind of cool, but. 
I think what Netflix is starting to prove is the value proposition of what they're offering. It's not that um it, it's it's not that they are that their product, i.e. the movies or their TV series or whatever, is better than going to the movies but simply offers a better value proposition. Like, do you want to spend $10 and go to the movies? Um, or do you just want to sit back and enjoy something in the privacy of your own home? However or whenever that is. And so if you can tout that 26 million people will watch you. And again, we're, I'm going to go with the Nielsen data because Nielsen data is hard data that they're able to pull and extrapolate. And they've been doing this for, you know, 60 years almost now. Um, then that's sitting there going, man, I should, I should just sell my stuff to Netflix. Because even if I only got a dollar, a dollar ahead, I'm getting 26 million. So I could go and make a five million dollar project, get one or two decent stars who want to do this as a, uh, you know, as kind of their, artsy pieces and stuff like that and then get netflix to buy it from me for 20 million and cool i've just made 15 million dollars and netflix will make their money back and they get to keep the project so they'll make their money back in perpetuity versus the value proposition of taking my five million dollar movie and trying to put it in a theater so my question tim is do you think at this point not necessarily on the quality of the product itself, but the value proposition of the product. Is Netflix, is Netflix starting to make a case against movie theaters? I am not entirely sure about that. I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question. It's to be tough honest. because I don't know the answer. I don't. I myself do not have an answer to the question. I. I mean, it, it's because it is so different. Because it's so different, right? It is truly a different thing. And so then, and it starts opening all these doors and all these questions of like, well, do you have a, you know, do you have a home media center? Do you have a theater? So you know, whatever, blah, blah, all this kind right. of stuff. You know, is it better? Is the majesty better in a theater? Uh, and it's, and, and I'm not, and I don't want to broach any of that kind of stuff. I'm just curious, you know, a, a literally just purely the value proposition on its own. I mean, because it's, it seems to me that Netflix hasn't proven it. I would not, I would not say that it's proven it. But I would, but I believe it's starting to make that case. And if it is, if it does prove it, you know, I guess the, well, that's the $64 million question, right? You know, well, then what? So, so here, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Well, I guess here's the thing. Like with Bird Box, I'm not going to watch it. I have no desire to watch it. And it feels like people are going to watch it because they're going to be like, well, you know, it's on, it's on Netflix. I, you know, I, it's, I can, I can just watch that at home. That's fine. Absolutely. If the movie was in the movie theater, it probably wouldn't be, not be making this amount of money, this much money. 
I mean, I'm saying that. I don't know if that's the case or not. If you look at Netflix movies, they do a bunch of self-promotion through Netflix. I'm sure you get emails like I do saying when a new movie is coming out or when they're releasing a new original movie. Uh, If that movie was being released in the theater, they uh, the studio would have to then market the movie for that theater. Therefore, for certain movies, that's, you know, millions of dollars depending on how much they're wanting to put forth towards marketing. I think if Netflix continues making good movies, you know, I think that's good for them. And I think that will, uh, especially when they're willing to take chances with movies like The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which, believe it or not, I've met more people than not who've hated the movie than actually enjoyed the movie. I know. I've just, yeah, I've talked to a number of people that did not like, that shut it off within the first... 10 minutes or so. So if, if Netflix is willing to take more chances, I'm all for it. And I think they've succeeded, but, and I, I say, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. <laughs> sure. Um, like with Roma, um, Roma was showing in more theaters by me because Netflix released them in, in, a, in certain theaters in select cinemas, mm. uh, then over by you, Matt, if I had time and there were enough show times that kind of worked with my schedule, because the show times aren't as uh, varied uh, with this film, I would have loved to have seen Roma at the theater. I would have gotten, I got a lot out of it seeing it on my big screen TV, uh, but I would have gotten so much more out of it at the movie theater. Now, did I enjoy watching the movie at the movie theater? I sure did. I watched it. 10 o'clock at night, so it was dark outside, I had the lights off, and I was able to watch it and enjoy it with limited uh, limited uh, 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 distractions. But if I got to see it at the movie theater, I would have been completely engrossed with the movie. I would have trusted the movie. I wouldn't have checked the time within the first 20 minutes because... I, I thought the movie was only on for five minutes or so, and I didn't realize how much I enjoyed it. So I wouldn't have even thought to have checked the time. I would have just let them, I would have trusted the film personally and let it, uh, you know, and let it captivate me from beginning to end. So I, I if only if Netflix did that with all of their movies and in all the markets <laughs> throughout the U.S., all the major cities, all the major movie-going cities, show it in a couple theaters at least, but have it make it make sure it's available, or or or, or make sure the theaters make it available if you know or whatever throughout the entire day for a period of time, you know. And especially when it comes down to movies like Roma, movies like The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Because people like us, people like me who have that AMC movie stub subscription, sure I should, I'll go see those movies. And if I love those movies, I will go see that movie again. I mean, looked at, look at a, a Phantom Thread from last year. That was my favorite movie of last year. I saw it multiple times at the movie theater. So I will do that. Um, unfortunately, so far... The only five-star movie I've seen this year, and one of the only five-star movies that came out last year, I had to watch it on Netflix last night. So, uh, you know, that's that's how I feel about it. I will never think Netflix is completely 100% worth it with their original film, like, serious content. 
until they do something to remedy the uh, the availability of their films at the movie theater. And I'm not talking about a wide release. I'm talking about a, a limited wide release. You can keep it in select theaters. That's fine. It's just make it available so that people can go when they have time to go. You know, and that's it. Okay. Well, I encourage you to read this article for yourself and come to whatever conclusions you feel you should come to. Head over to MSN.com, again, by way of Gary Levin and USA Today. Nielsen backs Netflix's claim of huge bird box viewership. And that brings us to the end of the news. Next week, we're going to do some more news for you. Obviously, we've got a lot to be getting catch, getting caught up on and moving forward as we progress through awards season. So we'll want to keep up, keep abreast of the news for a bit. But we still might throw in some other bonus segments here and there. And without further ado, I guess it's time we get to the movies, is it not, sir? I will allow this segment as well. <laughs> and here we go, folks. It's the movie we <laughs> So this week's movies are Mary Poppins Returns, Vice, and Roma. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Vice? Let's do it. Vice. What do you say? I want you to be my VP. I want you. You're my Vice. Well, George, I, uh... I'm the CEO of a large company. And I have been Secretary of Defense... And I have been White House Chief of Staff. The Vice Presidency is a mostly symbolic job. Uh However, if we came to a uh, different understanding, I can handle the more mundane jobs, overseeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. I like that. When you have power, people will always try to take it from you, always. Are you even more ruthless than you used to be? So we gonna do this thing or what? Is this happening? I believe we can make this work. Hot damn. All right. 2018 American biographical comedy drama film. It's written and directed by Adam McKay. This film stars Christian Bale as Dick Cheney with Amy Adams, Steve Carell, Sam Rockwell, Tyler Perry, Allison Pill, and Jesse Plemons in supporting roles. Uh, basically, the movie follows Cheney as he becomes the most powerful vice president in America's history. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty much what the movie is. And... <laughs> For those who may or may not fall asleep for any particular reason. <laughs> oh yeah. Not that, not that she'll ever, not that she'll ever hear this. <laughs> the film is told in two parts. So, so if you kind of like see credits rolling for some reason, just stick it out. It's, it's got an extra, uh, it's got a post credit scene. <laughs> uh, and it's the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's the rest of the movie. Yeah, that, that's got a post credit scene that's like, you know, uh, an hour long. Uh, anyway, 
Okay. So, I think that the movie... Uh, um, so, I, I'll... I'm not to try and steal Tim's thunder, but just to kind of help with my review here. Uh, Tim had helped me, uh, Tim had told me that he, he had explained that basically when Adam McKay, uh, got, had his runaway success with, um, the big short, they decided that with Vice, they kind of wanted to do a similar, they wanted to kind of give it a similar feel. Oh, I didn't say that. I said it seemed like that's what they did. Oh, I apologize. Okay, it seemed like okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were saying that that had that was a decision that was made. I apologize. No, no, no. No, I was saying that it seemed like Adam McKay wanted to make a movie, and either he saw it or somebody, the production company, saw it and said, "You know what? This doesn't work. We want it to be more like The Big Short." And so they went oh, back okay. and scrambled around. That's what it to me it felt like. And this was the you know maybe. Maybe I shouldn't be drinking when we talk like that. Because <laughs> that's what I took her. So at any rate, um, I am, however, very much glad that Tim and I had talked before I had seen it. I had a few reservations about the film. Um, not in point of fact anything about Adam McKay or Christian Bale or, you know, the performances or anything. Just kind of the, just kind of the subject matter and stuff like that. Um, but, but after talking to Tim, I was actually, okay, now I'm geared up. I'm ready. Let's go see this. Let's go do this. Um, I, I definitely did get that feeling like you did, Tim, and it does make sense when you think of it in that aspect. It helps to, it helps the film to have a little bit more of a coherence to it because it is scattered and it is all over the place despite being told in kind of two halves, like, um, kind of leading up to the, it's almost as if, you know what it actually makes me think of now that I think of it? It makes me think of Clue. And for those of you who remember Clue or don't remember Clue or whatever, at, at the end of the movie, uh, you got one of three different endings to the film when you saw it in the original theatrical release. But when they brought it to home media, they gave you all three endings cut so that you could see how the movie would work. And as they did, you see one ending, it's like, that's how it could have happened, but what about this? And that's kind of what Vice does, because you see where... Cheney could have ridden off into the sunset and they go, ah, that's how it could have happened. But what about this? And then they give you the rest of the movie, uh, which is ostensibly post 9-11. And uh, um, so, so it helps with that kind of coherence. But at the end of the day, despite knowing what they were trying to do, despite understanding where it was coming from and the fact that you've clearly got a solid director you've got great performances uh, you've got great performances in christian bale amy adams uh, and sam rockwell um i just kind of felt like the movies it just didn't despite my efforts at being able to understand it and and kind of follow what was happening I felt like it needed the explanation that I got from Tim to be able to put it together and wrap your head around it. Without that, it feels like it's it's completely all over the place. And I understand that it's part satire, um, which is fine. But I really feel like the movie itself 
tries too hard to make you feel like lightning's going to strike twice. And it and it didn't. So I give this one a two and a half out of five. It's not a it's not a bad movie, um, but I mean it's just kind of okay. And it really, really, really relies on the performances to carry it because everything else that was made uh, that where the decisions were made behind the camera, in the overarching story, and in the writing, all of which is Adam McKay. It, it just it just didn't really work all that great so two and a half out of five but i think i really do think the performances are top notch sure there you go christian bell gives a great performance as does everyone else in the cast uh the movie itself though is a total mess not even a tonal mess a total mess (laughs) the tone it chooses to stick with is very vanilla. It's not a successful comedy, drama, nor satire. The flick comes across as if Adam McKay wanted to make a somewhat different flick from the big short, but once he completed Vice, either he or someone else decided that it just didn't work, so they then set off to cram Vice into that unique mold that the big short came from. I saw the movie with my dad and my more significant SO. Uh, My father would have given the movie a 3.5 out of 5, and my more significant SO, her rating would have been disqualified because she actually fell asleep at the beginning of the movie, and then she awoke to the fake credit sequence, the fake credit rule, which takes place halfway through the film. When it comes down to it, the flick is all over the place, which turns muddy, very quick because of the amount of story that's being told and not really progressing into Cheney's next action and his progression as a human being. There's a lot going on, but because of how the structure of the film is told, you just really didn't get a cohesive character arc. Whether if it was a bad character arc or a good character's arc and his character and this guy really needs it. Otherwise (laughs) I wasn't really able to tell what they, the filmmakers were wanting the audience to get out of the flick. McCain Bale makes Dick Cheney out to be a bad guy, but then they turn around and they make him out to be an understanding human being. So it was Very muddled tonally, which made for a mess of a film. But I gotta say, I enjoyed the second half of the film, and I was just eating up the performances of... Uh, of Steve Carell, even uh, Sam Rockwell of, or George W. Bush, and then, of course, Christian Bell as Dick Cheney. And every actor in the film does a great job. I mean, there's no sour apple in the bunch. I am giving it a three out of five. All right, so where are we going to turn from here, sir? Mary Poppins! <laughs> All right, Mary Poppins returns. I honestly can't remember why we kept most of this stuff to begin with. Don't you remember that kite? We used to love flying that with mother and father. Those days are long behind me. I 
live and breathe. Mary. Poppins, who came back? You seem hardly to have aged at all. Really? One never discusses a woman's age, Michael. Would have hoped I'd taught you better. What brings you here after all this time? Same thing that brought me the first time. I've come to look after the bank's children. Us? Oh, yes, you too. We're about to lose our home. Everything's fallen to pieces since your mother. I miss mother. Nothing's gone forever, only out of place. It's a good thing you come along when you did, Mary Poppins. How'd you do that? Do what? been off filling the children's heads with stuff and nonsense. You've forgotten what it's like to be a child. Everything is possible. Even the impossible. Off we go. Alright, we got ourselves a 2018 American music-y, music-y? musical fantasy film. It's directed by Rob Marshall. And uh, it's based on the book series, of course, by P.L. Travers. And this film is a sequel to 1964's Mary Poppins. And this time, of course, we have uh, Emily Blunt starring as Mary Poppins and then Lin-Manuel Miranda, Ben uh, Wishaw, Emily Mortimer, Julie Walters, Dick Van Dyke, Angela Lansbury, Colin Firth, and Meryl Streep in supporting roles. Now, this one is set 25 years after the events of the original film, and she's come to help Michael, who has lost his wife and is about to lose his house. And so she's there to do her Mary Poppins thing. Now... Here is where I'm at on this movie. Up front, four out of five. I really like the movie. I think this is a really good movie, but it falls short of being great. And the reason why I feel that it falls short of being great is because instead of trying to be its own movie, it simply tries to rehash, not even rehash, I don't want to say rehash, recreate the original. And this is one of those rare, rare instances where you can come and make a sequel to a movie that is 54 years old and no one will not know what's happening. I mean, I cannot think of anyone... I mean, like a five-year-old has heard of Mary Poppins because mom has mentioned it or dad's mentioned it or put it in the story or read the book or put on a video or hit the or, or played the soundtrack in some form or fashion on the road or on the Alexa, right, or on your Echo and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. Everyone has heard of Mary Poppins. So you don't have any ground to cover. You don't have anything to do but make a new story. And if you want to go with all new songs, then go with all new songs. But the songs themselves need to be their own. 
And this is where the movie falls short. Instead of getting movies um, like um, a con- like instead of getting movies like a con- uh, a a conversation and the place where lost things go, you get. A cover is not the book. You get the Royal Dalton Music Hall. You get all these things turning turtle. You get all of these songs that simply recreate the beats from the original movie. And it's, I mean, I, I, when I watched, when I watched Mary Poppins Returns, I'm sitting here going, oh, okay. So this is the song that's supposed to replace uh the the life i lead song and oh this is supposed to replace chim chimney and oh this is supposed to replace uh you know super Calo, right and you can sit you can sit there and see it you know turning turtle oh i get it this is i love to laugh oh okay perfect now it's not to say that the songs are bad they're not they're really great songs my kids are running through every time they get a chance they grab uh, they, they turn Alexa on for herself and they start playing the Mary Poppins Return soundtrack. It's great. Don't get me wrong. But there are times and places in the film that have these brief little moments of pushing things forward and creating new moments and new memories that are so incredibly strong and indelible to the experience that makes Mary Poppins Mary Poppins. And for me, the place where long things go, uh, lost things go, and a conversation are two examples of that. But a conversation is only about like a minute and a half long. And the place where lost things go, for me, is the best song in the musical. Because it is extremely touching, and you really can feel the loss. But at the same time, you get the core, you also get the core of the film. In the, for me, in that in that song, everything else is just meant to kind of tonally match. Like if you ran a side by side comparison of Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins Returns, you would pretty much watch the same movie. The songs would be different, but you'd be pretty much watching the same movie. And that is why I say it falls short of greatness. I think it's a fun movie. It's truly deserving of its four stars out of five. You will have a blast watching it. The kids are going to love it. The costume design, the special effects, the, the, the music in and of itself, all going to be deserving of every Oscar nomination that it lands with, the SAG Awards, everything that it's been nominated for so far in terms of uh, technical stuff for any Golden Globes or overall Best Picture nominations and stuff like that. All of that well-deserved. But it is not the next Mary Poppins. And that is why it gets a 4 out of 5. I hope I explained myself well, Tim. What do you got, sir? I easily could have given this movie a five out of five, especially it took uh, the first three or four songs for me to build up the stamina to fight back, 
tears of joy, you know, little, little tear droplets coming down my face just because of how beautiful the music was and how just beautifully the songs were utilized. And it was just a, a joyous, joyous movie for me because I grew up watching Mary Poppins. I loved it. It was a childhood favorite of mine. I thought this was a great continuation to the Mary Poppins story. And if you loved the original film, I think you are going to love, to some degree, Mary Poppins Returns. Now, I'm giving it a 4.5 out of 5, and I'm not going to go into so much detail, but I'm going to give you an example of something that bugged me. It was mainly an annoyance. I'm trying my best not to do, again, quarter stars, so unfortunately, I'm stuck with a 4.5 out of 5. But there are a handful of things throughout the movie uh, that bugged me or slightly annoyed me, but this is the one that got me the most. For example, when they're doing the trip a little light tune which is the updated Chimney Sweeper song, whatever it's called, they decide to do this beautiful uh, a shot, I guess. You see for a split second, you see this beautiful wide angle, full shot of all the guys kind of hanging from all these different lampposts. Then through the duration of the song, they keep doing these quick cuts. And every freaking shot they cut to was not a great shot when they easily could have just kept that full frame shot and maybe cut to uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's character and cut to reaction shots from Mary Poppins and the kids, and it would have been absolutely beautiful because you would have taken in the singing, you would have been, you would have taken in the choreography, and you would have taken in the beautiful visuals of the lamplighters and what all they were doing with the lamp poles, or whatever they're called. And then the second part of that scene that annoyed me, slight annoyance, whenever the bicycles came out, they decided to do these BMX tricks Whenever a bicycle flies into an air, why the hell do you have to turn your front tire all the way to the left or the right? Is just distracting. I really don't think that was a popular maneuver uh, back in the early 1900s, especially I doubt it was a popular mover for lamp lighters. So that probably distracted me more than any other fault I found with the film. Other than that, I give it a 4.5 out of 5. I'll be going to see it again. I was able, We actually went to go see it at the Dolby Theater nearby. If you live by Dolby Theater, you got to go see it there because you'll also be able to see it in Dolby Vision, which is one of the best ways you could see any 2D movie on a big screen. And also Dolby Atmos, it's fantastic. So please check it out at a Dolby Cinema if you have not yet. And if you've seen the movie already, go and see it again in Dolby Cinema but 4.5 for me. All right. Well, then that leaves us with Roma. 2018 drama film written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, he also produced it, co-edited it, and he shot it. Uh, this is um, a Netflix movie, obviously, and it follows a maid um, in Mexico in the 70s as she kind of... Um, witnesses takes part in has things happen to her a lot of political unrest that happened in mexico city in 1970 and it follows kind of her it centers around her experience during this time but she's also working with a i guess i would say upper middle class family maybe upper class family during this time frame the 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 movie okay I alluded to this earlier. 
this movie, every single meticulous point of this movie is 100% deliberate. Nothing, and I mean nothing, happens by mistake in this film. And it is a testament to the ability of Cuaron as a filmmaker and as a storyteller that he has chosen to do the things that he has with this film and taking on all the additional roles. I mean, he was the cinematographer for this movie, right? He was physically shooting it. He was directing it. He was behind all of it. And so you've got a movie. It's shot in black and white. And yet there, as I was alluding to earlier, there is a distinct color palette within the film. And you're like, how the hell do you do that? It's black and white. And that is something that is so incredibly difficult to recreate, especially in today's world. But it's not sepia-toned. You can see things that are gilded. You can feel the colors being presented. And yet you can feel the age behind it by the way that the color palette is used. You can see the care that is laid out in every shot. You can see how nothing happens, even incidentally, without it being meant to happen. And, and for example, when you see a shot, any shot, just pick a movie, and someone is conversing with someone else, and they will usually have a either a mid shot to do the two people within the frame or if they're going to bounce back between two people for whatever reason then they'll have a two camera shot and it'll just cut between the two people talking occasionally you might have a reason that you're going to need to shift that perspective from mid to a close-up or what have you well Quaron will set up a shot that way but it'll simply be two people talking and when those two people are talking You'll see someone like a kid walking back in the background and he'll use that child walking in the background as the excuse to pan slowly and deliberately across the room so that that kid can go in there and now you can see and, and go, like, go down a hall. But that's not what you're supposed to look at anymore. You're supposed to look at the parents talking in the bedroom. It'll be those kinds of shots. Everything is so deliberate and it's masterfully set up. 100% set up. Unfortunately, much like watching a painter paint, not Bob Ross, not someone who sets up and does something that you can see and follow along with in a 30-minute block, or that you could see someone who is who can expertly craft a tale quickly, it's like trying to watch, the movie is like trying to watch a painter paint. And there's not much happening until the painter is done. And you can't really do anything with it until the paint dries. And the movie is like watching paint dry. It is so slow. So slow. And that hurts everything. The performances are good. I mean, the subtleties are there. Most people would not, I mean, even if you have a degree of, of understanding of Spanish, and I'm not talking about fluency, right? But you can, you can kind of get the gist loosely of a Spanish conversation or something. Or if you see something, it's all, you would never really understand that there's two completely different dialects going on here. 
you've got kind of a straight Spanish dialect, and then you've got kind of a, a, a mixicante, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it's like, I don't want to say lower class, but uh, just kind of a more, um, a, a, a more cultural exchange, just a, a flatter cultural exchange language that happens. And so it's broken up for you so that you can see, for example, when the maids talk to one another, they're talking in their own dialect versus talking in just regular Spanish when they are dealing with their clientele. It's stuff like that. So, I mean, there's just so much amazing stuff going on in this film, but it's just, it's too slow. It's just too slow. And this also kind of leads into the negative side of Netflix because I think that it's possible that maybe me watching this movie later on at night when I was a little tired might have lent into my believing that it was slow. Um, that's not the case because um, I made sure to rewatch. I rewatched the first 45 minutes of this movie today to make sure that I was like, oh, okay, nope, this movie's just slow. Um, but yeah, so I have to give this movie a two. I did not like the end result as much as I appreciate everything that went into it. And as much as I can realize and appreciate the craftsmanship that went into this, I, it doesn't stop it from being boring. And you can't have a two and a half hour movie that, it, that is, that is boring. And, and that's, and that's where we end up. I even, despite this, despite my rate, despite this two star rating, I wish that this was going for more than just the, uh, best foreign film Oscar, because I would still say, even despite my rating, I would still say that Cuaron should get cinematography all to himself for this movie. I think this is probably, you know, we were talking about the cinematography list. I think this movie will be on the cinematography list for the 21st century. And it should be probably a masterclass in cinematography even now. But the movie's too boring. So, two stars. Especially considering uh, him becoming the cinematographer was super last minute. Roma is a beautifully written, directed, and shot and edited film from Alfonso Cuaron. But he wanted to make this film after 2006's Children of Men, and he wanted to make it with longtime cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki. When Lubezki ran into scheduling conflicts, Coron couldn't trust any other DP with the task of capturing such a personal film. So he wanted to keep what was happening uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera in the native tongue. So he didn't want to risk having to hire a bunch of English uh, speaking actors if he then had to hire an English only speaking director of photography. Coron ended up shooting the film in addition to directing it, editing it, and writing it. And it's obviously a personal film from Koran, as it's composed of various detailed elements from his childhood in early 1970s Mexico City. 
He recreated various aspects from memory down to how the leaves were scattered on the street. The production designer made up rooftops, streets, storefronts, and the interior and exterior of homes to look as they did in photographs from Koran and his family. The set dressers and prop masters used actual items from Koran's family to dress the sets and the actors, often putting little trinkets in room drawers that would eventually, or actually never, be opened and seen by the audience. And he did that just to give the set a more conscious and lived-in environment. This may have been to benefit the untrained actors that were hired to be in the film. Well, most of the actors in the film are untrained actors. But I'd personally like to think that him putting his own family trinkets in secret drawer in drawers that might never be opened up by the actors and therefore never seen by the audience, I'd like to think that he did this, that it was done to immediately transport Koran back to his childhood and the moments that he actually wanted to capture for the film. Roma isn't a complete nostalgic trip based on the life of Koran, as the film is about the various sacrifices women make for their family. I believe that this film is one of the most natural-feeling films I have seen in regard to the films in the running this award season. There were two films very much like this from last year, Phantom Thread and Call Me By Your Name. And while Matt was talking, while Matt was doing his review, I actually remembered that I took a single issue with this film. And it pains me that I am actually going against my quarter star ruling that uh, I just talked about moments ago. The only issue that I had with this film is how the political unrest happening within the story developed throughout the course of the film and how it affected the characters. I just didn't see a direct correlation, and it seemed like they were trying to go for a direct correlation, and also it didn't feel like this political unrest was necessarily amounting to a riot right when the film is kind of coming together. Uh, and therefore, I am giving this film a 4.75 out of 5. Please give it a shot. Give it a shot. And you have to give the movie your full undivided attention, I believe, to fully be embraced by the beauty of Roma. 4.75 out of 5 for me. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Very differing perspectives on these films this week. But nonetheless... A successful episode and a successful return for the SLS cast in 2019. Next week's movies are going to be If Beale Street Could Talk, Mary, Queen of Scots, and Ben is back. And so without further ado, I believe it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. 
Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com. Both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Alfonso Cuaron, I get to say this. The only reason you make a movie is not to make or set out to do a good or a bad movie. It's just to see what you learn for the next one. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.